Well, good morning, all. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm thankful that Dave and Slade uh, sang that. I sort of put in a special request, and one reason is because that hymn is just so rich. I mean, it, it honestly, in my view, doesn't get much better than, um, than uh, Miss Cousins years ago being moved to write something so, uh, so profound and so reflective of the New Testament and how the apostles and, of course, Jesus himself um, understand the gospel and the heart of the gospel, which is substitutionary atonement. Um, and just what an, amazing, what an amazing hymn, just from a literary standpoint, but just from a, a standpoint of reality. It's just phenomenal that this actually is what was going on on the cross. Um, Jesus Christ took our just punishment that we might be um, set free. Just amazing. Um, For some of you who don't know me, my name is Chris and I'm one of the elders here. And um, so hopefully if I don't know you, I'll be able to get to know you a little bit. But just so you, just a quick uh, intro for who I am. And, um, but we've been in First Peter for a while, so we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to try to finish up the chapter this morning. And uh, before I do that, why don't, we, why don't we pray together? Father, we're just so thankful that now being justified by faith through Christ's blood, we have peace with God. Uh, thank you, Lord, for um, gaining that peace for us. Um, and Lord, just pray that you would help us this morning to appreciate even with more fullness what it costs you to save sinners from sin. Um, and so Lord, I pray that for your people in here that they would gain, gain great encouragement, um, great assurance, and Lord, for those who don't know you in here, that they would realize again what it took for you to, take, to, to save sinners and and which speaks certainly of the gravity and the, the enormity of sin and the heinousness of it, but also your love and power uh, um, to procure a just forgiveness, a just basis for forgiveness, and that they would, they would see that you are willing and ready to save the vilest of sinners. And um, Lord, that, that brings you glory and honor, and that um, certainly is, is something that brings us the greatest of all goods. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter 2. I'm going to read from 18 and following. So if you have a Bible, please, please follow along with me. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, 
you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. All right. So Peter has been talking to certainly Christians in general, but in particular these Christian slaves who live in a context of difficulty. Certainly masters, in terms of their treatment of slaves, vary to, to, to differing degrees. But he's, I'm sure, in, specifically, in specific here, has a, a, a view to trying to encourage these Christian slaves that are being treated harshly. Um, not because of anything they've done in particular, but because they have harsh masters and because oftentimes, Paul says, when you live godly lives, you are persecuted. And so Peter is trying to give these Christian slaves, and again, all Christians, that, all Christians in general, Christians, Christians that suffer under persecution, some rock under their feet, some foundation that will help them to endure patiently the suffering that they're going through for the sake of their witness of Christ. And so several things that he says puts a rock under their feet, a foundation under their feet, um, a confidence in their souls. And that is, verse, first of all, verse 21, this reality that you've been called to suffer. He reminds these slaves and reminds all of us that we have been called to a path of suffering, that Christianity is a path of suffering. If you thought anything different, well, the New Testament sort of clarifies that for you. If you thought that being, becoming a Christian means that you therefore will have no conflict anymore in your life or that the conflict will become less and less or your difficulties or treatment by the world will become better and better, well, um, that's not necessarily the case. Peter says that we are called to suffer. And we're not just called to suffer sort of in the abstract, but it's connected to the life of Christ. He says that you've been called to suffer since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So to be a Christian means to follow in the path of Jesus, which was primarily pain. Emotional pain, mental pain, physical pain. That is the way of Christ. Um, And uh, we talked a little bit about all the different ways that Christ suffered, and then, therefore, the ways we also will suffer following in his steps. Peter goes on to say that this Jesus was an example to us, and he was an example to us not only in the fact that he suffered, but how he suffered, right? Jesus Christ was the only innocent man to ever live, at least his whole life innocent, right? Adam was for a minute. But Jesus Christ was the only innocent man post-fall who ever ever lived. The only man truly who didn't deserve any harsh treatment. And actually endured more than any one sinner ever will. But how did he bear up under unjust treatment? How did he bear up under unjust uh, treatment from governors or officials or religious leaders or even just the public? How did he do it? Well, in particular here, Peter said he committed no sin nor is any deceit found in his mouth. You know, when trials come and difficulty comes, who you really are inside comes out. What you really believe, what your perspectives are. It presses you. It has a way of squeezing you. Right? And how did it squeeze Jesus? Well, we know that it did bring a pressure upon him, right? In the, in the garden, he cried out, sweating, sweat mingled with blood. The pressure was intense, and yet he committed no sin. It didn't move him into transgression. It didn't move him into a false step, a false thought. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He still spoke the truth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
Peter gives us a small glimpse into Jesus' psychology. What was he doing all the while these people were reviling him, mocking him, mistreating him, um, friends betraying him? What was he doing? Well, he was entrusting himself to his father. See, Jesus had a perspective of the end. And he knew that vengeance ultimately belonged to that day and not to his own day. He had a mission to do, right? He had a mission to come and accomplish, and that mission was the salvation of sinners. That's why he came. And that mission is our mission, right? Our mission in this life is not to seek justice at all costs for every injustice. That is not our mission. Our mission is not here to make the world a better place. Our mission is the gospel. That is the mission of the church. And certainly that will bleed out into various good works and in different areas and in society, but all as a platform for a witness of the greatest truth and, and, the, and the best news in all of eternity, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is why Jesus did not utter back threats, did not revile in return, because of his mission and because of him who judges righteously. This is so vital because we are so prone to want to strike back, aren't we? We're so prone, but we must have the bigger picture in mind. So now Peter is going to go speaking from Christ's suffering in general. Certainly we can see that it's probably the suffering of that time of his passion. And he's going to get even more specific. He's going to go from speaking of Christ's suffering as our example in the previous verses now to Christ's suffering as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation as the New Testament brings out, and as a source, as the source of our righteous living. So he says here in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross. So Peter gets real specific. He's talked about Christ's suffering in general. Talked about his being reviled, not reviling in return. Now he's going to get real specific, zeroing right in on the cross. And he's going to say that sort of the apex of Christ's suffering was not the physical torment, but it was the bearing of sins in his own body on the cross. And he's going to say that the, the cross itself, the suffering of Jesus Christ, have, has an inevitable and, and, and an amazing, powerful, effectual result. And that result is that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. Now the specific suffering he mentions here on the cross does not nullify the other vast array of sufferings that Jesus experienced. But it is the suffering on the cross that is the great fixation of the New Testament and the apostles. Right? That is the great fixation. Because it is here at the cross that Jesus Christ would fulfill his mission as our substitute for sin. And it is here in this teaching that the true message of the gospel and the comfort of the saints is found. In other words, Christ is our example of suffering is an amazing truth, one we must take to heart, one we must think, think about constantly. I mean, the writer of Hebrews brings this forward to us as well. Christ is our example is... is is sobering, it's encouraging when we ourselves go through unjust treatment, and yet, and yet, if that's all the suffering of Christ is about and for, then we're choosing to just be masochists in this life. If we're just to follow this man who suffered a lot because he suffered a lot, 
without any sense of atonement, then we are just masochists. And he was a masochist. Maybe he was doing some good humanitarian work, but only temporal, with only temporal results. But that is not the fundamental importance of the cross. The fundamental importance of the cross is to understand it is that place where the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took our sins on himself so that we can take his righteousness to ourselves. In other words, forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life means that our suffering in this life has purpose and meaning and we can go through it with the assurance of his love and care and acceptance for all eternity. The fundamental essence of what the cross was all about, if you're going to interpret it, it's this It's this idea that Jesus Christ was there as a substitute for sin. It's not just some holy man on some holy emblem doing some holy thing. It is Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. When you see Jesus Christ on the cross, you are seeing what God thinks of sin. Your sin. Not his sin. He didn't have any sin. But that's that's what's going on. So Peter gives us some pretty descriptive terminology here. Follow along with me. How does he begin this little section here? He, he himself, Peter tells us, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself. Peter puts an emphasis. It was Jesus, yes, Jesus, that bore our sins. It was the sinless, eternal son that took our sins. He himself, He had no substitute, right? Jesus had no emissary to do this work. He had no ambassador to do this work. He had no representative to do this work. He himself came into this world to do this work himself. Right in the Old Testament, we understand that that the, the, the the whole content that you find throughout the history of the Old Testament is that there is no one righteous. Not even one. Not even one. There is no man on earth that can achieve righteousness, the righteousness that God requires on his own. Isn't this the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is not to be a ladder to heaven, but to show you, you can't get there from here. In Isaiah 63, the Lord says, I was astonished, and there was none to uphold, so my own arm brought salvation to me. If salvation is going to be accomplished, God's going to get it done. And he himself will be the one to have to come into this world. See, we serve an amazing God. We don't serve a God who stays up there, somewhere in this esoteric realm called heaven, dictating certain things to his creation, trying to give them pointers and tips about how to make sense of it all and hopefully turn out well in the end. No. He himself, actually, to bring about the best possible result, unseats himself from his throne and comes into this world he has made to bear a suffering more excruciating than any one sinner will ever experience in hell to save his people from their sins. This is the kind of God we have. This is actually incredibly helpful at so many levels, but at one level, doesn't it help you with the problem of evil? Doesn't it give you some sense like it's not the, the, the existence of evil in the world is hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? 
But you've got to understand that while it's hard to wrap our head around, and sometimes we feel like, wow, this just seems like unjust treatment of all these people, and there is injustice everywhere. God, what are you doing? How can you allow all this to happen? And those questions are real, and you can struggle through those questions, but never, ever forget, never, ever forget that our God himself has scars. Never forget that. Our God is not just some philosopher giving you some understanding of why evil exists. He himself experienced it fully and in full measure more than, more than any one sinner ever will. So while maybe it doesn't answer every question, it does let you realize that sin is real, evil is real, and God experienced it himself. And he experienced it himself. He, he, he knows what it is. This is why Jesus probably keeps his scars to remind us of that for all eternity that I know it. I know it. He himself, God himself, bore our sins. So it says that he himself bore our sins. This idea of bearing up, carrying a load. The idea in the, in the scriptures when speaking of this term to bear, means it can mean bearing a child, carrying a child. It can have the idea of carrying guilt. Has the idea of weight to it. In the Old Testament, speaking of the high priest, it can be speaking of bearing the representation of, of another's destiny, like the high priest in the Old Testament, right? The high priest existed as a representation as, as a representative for the others in Israel. In Exodus, it says, as God is giving out the instructions about the clothing of these high priests, he tells Moses that you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. This was what the high priests were to wear. They had these stones on their shoulder pieces as stones of a memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders, shoulders as a memorial. So you notice this high priest has a ma- like some pretty amazing clothing, and each piece of it has certain symbol-laden meaning to it, And here he says that it's these shoulder pieces that will have the names of the sons of Israel that Aaron is to understand is to bear the weight of their destiny in his actions and function as a high priest. It's interesting, it's on the shoulders. Something he's carrying. He's carrying their names. What does this mean? When the high priest would go do sacrifices, he'd be representing these people before the Lord, taking on himself the guilt that is due them, as it were. But also through the sacrificial system, procuring for them an atonement by which God would pass over sin. Exodus 28 says it again, maybe even more explicitly here. Aaron, the high priest, shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So when God looks at Aaron, he looks at Levi, right? He looks at Benjamin. He looks at Reuben. He looks at the tribes, and he looks at the individuals of the tribes in the representative. And when the representative offers sacrifice, well, it's that representative that is offering sacrifice for all the people. He's bearing the judgment. 
He's working out the sacrifices required for the people. The whole ministry of the high priest in the Old Testament was bound up with the judgment of others. It was bound up in carrying the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders and on his heart. Over his heart. That's what it says. Over his heart. If the high priest performed his duties accurately, the Lord would pass over the sins of the nation. What a task. But certainly this was just a clear, symbol-laden picture of the Lord Jesus, right? Our great high priest who came into this world with the names of his people, the new Israel on his mind and heart. And he carried these names with him before the Lord to the cross and shouldered the load of their guilt on himself. But understand that this bearing of of sin and guilt, as it were, under the Old Testament system, Old Covenant system, was just symbolic and provisional. As is so many things, Jesus fulfills the reality of this picture. The bearing of the sins and the guilt in the New Covenant by Jesus Christ was real and experienced in full measure. In other words, the priest in the Old Testament just had names representing the people on his clothing, symbolizing bearing their guilt. He didn't feel the anguish of the punishment the people should have experienced and received. That was symbolically reserved for the animal, right? For the sacrifice. The Day of Atonement was really just a bloody mess. The priest was really just a butcher. What a picture. But the priest himself didn't experience this just punishment. He didn't experience the sorrows, the grief of bearing the wages of sin. But Jesus did. That's what Peter wants us to know. Jesus really did. Jesus really did experience it. He really did bear the guilt of his people. He genuinely experienced what it was like to feel the full force of the wages of sin, which was eternal punishment. Jesus really did carry the guilt and therefore the just torment under the wrath of his Father. He bore our sins personally. He had no scapegoat. He had no sacrifice. He didn't bring anything with him. It was himself. And Peter gives us this phrase to make this clear. Where did he bear the the sins? In his body. Where did he bear the sins? In his body. This bearing of sins was not born and carried on his clothes, symbolically. It was a load carried within him. The billions of sins of all of his people was carried in the body of the Lord Jesus on the cross. There was physical suffering, no doubt, but even more, it was an emotional, mental, spiritual bearing. It was a severing and a forsaking of Christ's sense of the love and fellowship of God. And instead of that sense of the love and fellowship of God that he had through all eternity in face-to-face fellowship, he gets an acute awareness of God's hatred and displeasure in his body. When Christ Jesus cries out on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The idea is that he had a sharp sense that the Father shunned him. Right? David had that sense in Psalm 22, living a life where he was on the run, living a life of being surrounded by lions and people who hated him, and it had a sense that God had forsaken him, but not like this. Not like this. What was going on was a transaction between heaven and earth. The righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus was there as an unrighteous man, treated as an unrighteous man, treated as an enemy of God. When Christ cries out, why have you forsaken me? He has this sharp sense that the Father shunned him. And it was so terrible that Christ cries this this question. It's a question, isn't it? In anguish. Why have you forsaken me? It's a question. It's a a really staggering question. Because you're like, well, I mean, don't you know? Don't you know? And while I don't pretend to make sense out of all of it, I think there's an, an aspect that we have to understand that Jesus didn't know how bad it was going to be. I mean, he knew it was going to be awful. I mean, he knew it was going to be absolutely horrifying. But I don't know that he fully knew. This cry, while it's, yes, read Psalm 22, I'm fulfilling that, is more than that. It's a real cry of real forsakenness. He was there experiencing something he never had. Becoming sin for us. This bearing of sins is not primarily breathing his last breath and dying in the ground physically. That, That is not it. It can't be it. Why? Well, because when did he say it was finished? After he raised from the dead? No, before he breathed his last. Whatever is going on on the cross with Jesus bearing the eternal wages of sin, my sin, your sin, happens before he breathes his last. It happens as Jesus is fully conscious, taking the torment in his own body on the tree. It's happening happening consciously in his own soul. So for the idea of the, of the teaching that, that Christ bearing our sin was only him sort of dying, a capital punishment physically dying in our place and no conscious torment being in the just punishment of God for sin, they need to read these verses in Peter. They need to pay attention to the cross. They need to understand the cross more. It was in his body on the cross is how and where he became sin for us. And in that teaching of annihilationism, I know there's varied ideas, but to those who believe that it was merely capital punishment and just death in terms of ceasing of physical life, they need to read these verses. You can hear the language of our sins being carried in his own body in Isaiah 53. Listen to the language. Again, and Peter has Isaiah 53 firmly fixed in his brain here as he's writing this. Surely our griefs he himself bore. What did he bear? Griefs. That's what he bore. He bore griefs in his own soul. 
utter sadness, emotional pain, bearing up under that load, which arguably is, is, is far harder, isn't it, than just a broken leg? Living under the emotional torment of a particular situation is so much more, is so much more horrifying. We are body-soul entities. And what happens in here really affects us, and, and the Lord Jesus was bearing our griefs. Isaiah says, our sorrows he carried. This is not just carrying our sad times, right? Like, like when our pet dies, although that can be very sorrowful. <laughs> but the sorrows in Isaiah 53 having to do with transgressions, iniquities. That's the language. This is not just about bearing sad days, although there's probably some truth in that. This has to do, primarily, that it's the sorrow we would experience if we were being judged for our sin. Isaiah goes on to say, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This idea of being struck and afflicted was certainly both by man and God, wasn't it? I mean, physically, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. They were hitting him. They were whipping him. They were stabbing him. They were nailing his wrists and feet. And yet, as the hymn says, the deepest stroke was the one what justice gave. The deepest stroke came from his own father. You know, what's the whole passage in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac all about, after all? Isn't it a picture, the the intense, suspenseful picture of a father about to sacrifice his son? What is that all about? Isn't Isn't that what we read in Isaiah? Isn't that what this is all about? The affliction came from both man and the father. And it's the father that, that pours on him. Afflicts him, smites him, strikes him. As Jesus is there as the high priest bearing the guilt of the people in his body. Isaiah goes on to say, crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. And again, there was a physical crushing in some sense, but certainly that wasn't the the apex of it. It was the crushing of his own own souls, his own soul under judgment. It was this this pressure of, of being the sacrifice for sin. Isaiah tells us who did the crushing. You know this verse well. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Again, I don't know what your perspective is about the cross before today. Man killed Jesus, but there's another sense in which God killed Jesus. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, not in some sadistic pleasure, that's not what we're saying, but in terms of what this overall was accomplishing in the great scheme of redemption. Certainly, he was utterly pleased with his son having the strength and bravery and faith to endure such horror I mean as fathers when you see your child strive for some goal that you he 
and he does it, and he knows you'll be so happy with it, and you see him do it, and he does well. I mean, it, it just something comes out of you as a parent. It's just like, that's my boy, right? And that's what it is. That's my boy. Strongest man who's ever lived. And he put him to grief because he knew that this was the way justice was to be meted out so that, oh, so that we could quote John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his own son. This is the giving of his son. The giving of his son is not just some abstract gift to some people. It's the delivering him over to Roman crucifixion and becoming the propitiation for sins. This grief that God the Father put his son through was not just some carrying of our bad days. This was, this was pouring out the crushing weight of his unmixed wrath on his son, which brought immense grief to his soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul, Isaiah goes on to say, as a result of the anguish of his soul. Again, what are we talking about? We're talking about anguish, pain, grief in his soul. This is where, this is really where all the, the, the punishment was meted out in full. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. It is about satisfaction. It's not just a, an 11th century doctrine. It is about satisfaction. It is about justice being satisfied. That is exactly what it is about. So God can forgive you on a just basis. Not so that God can doctor the books, but he can forgive you on a just basis. The crux of the cross was this crushing, this anguish which brought the anguish of his soul. Anguish is not something experienced by people who do not exist, as some annihilationists will teach. That eternal punishment means that there is no torment in hell as annihilationists teach, but just a ceasing of physical existence is wrong. They need to understand the nature of atonement. They need to understand the nature of sin. Jesus is a substitute, and as a substitute on the cross, they can witness the physical, physical pain, no doubt, but it's the spiritual and emotional anguish that, that Jesus was, was terrified of and that caused him so much anguish. As I said, he cries out, it is finished, before he physically passes. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's where he did it. And this will be the destiny of all the impenitent and unbelieving in hell. If Jesus is our substitute, right? Bearing conscious torment, just punishment for sin. Well, this will be the destiny of all the impenitent and unbelieving in hell. There will be eternal conscious torment where they will bear their own sins in their own bodies in hell. They will have anguish of soul. They will have grief and sorrow forever. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they will be bearing all of these things in themselves. In that place, there will be nothing but anger, misery, and woe. Jesus took all our misery in himself on the cross. 
you know, one, one immediate application to the Christian slaves that Peter is addressing here, and really to all Christians who will suffer hatred and persecution in this life, is that the greatest suffering any human will ever experience has been absorbed by Christ on the cross. Yes, they're going through tremendous pain, and Christians have endured unbelievable tortures. And yet, and yet, they will not suffer the wrath to come. See, the world fears trials and suffering in this life, but not the next. Not so with Christians. Christians can suffer in this life, right? Knowing that that sword of justice now sleeps for them forever, right? That's how we can endure. We endure because we know that one day our tears are going to be wiped away. There's no more suffering, no more pain, right? Eternal bliss, eternal joy. That's how we endure these things. But the world can't. The world is afraid of itself and what it can do to itself. And the book of Revelation, and really in the whole Bible, the scriptures say, listen, if you fear man in this life, then you'll experience the wrath of God in the next. But if you fear God in this life, you'll experience the love and the, and, and the acceptance and the glory of God in the next. Don't fear what the world fears, brethren. Fear him. And Peter says that he bore these things on the cross. It's the actual term for tree. The cross was an instrument of execution. It was used by the Romans as a deterrent to crime in the first century. And it's actually used in many other cultures before the first century. And yet the principle of hanging from a tree for the sake of punishment was actually an old covenant concept. In the old covenant, if one had committed a capital offense, one way to execute him was to hang him from a tree. Deuteronomy 21. Listen to what it says here. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Bury him the same day. Don't let him hang up there. That's a cursed man. Get him in the ground. It's a cursed man up there. And the New Testament, of course, looks at that passage and understands Jesus as truly fulfilling this. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, pointing to Christ in the book of Galatians as the fulfillment of the one who would become a curse for us on the tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ was a cursed man, even though he was an innocent man. And I want to say something here, and it's something that I um, think about from time to time, and one of the things that may be helpful for you all, and maybe I've already even said it in some measure this morning, but when we explain what happened on the cross, we have to fully appreciate that the reality that our sins are real. They're real. They have a real impact. You know, kids oftentimes, when they act out at home or wherever they act out, I don't know how all, that, all the mechanics of it work psychologically, but their sin really hurts mom and dad, doesn't it? 
really hurts them. It's a real thing. There's real offenses. There's real damage caused. But when we, and when we look at the cross, we must realize that our sins are genuine. Some of you in here, I don't think, believe that. I don't think that you believe that your sins are real or that this whole gospel, cross, Christian thing is real or true. But you have to understand, when you see this man Jesus suffer, you must understand that your sins are not a fiction. They're not make-believe. Sin is not some just worldview you know, principle or philosophical principle to try to make sense out of a world with so much evil detached from reality. It, it, our sin is a personal offense. It's personal rebellion against a holy God that brings death and destruction to everything it touches. And we know that sin is real not just because we see all the evil in the world, but because Jesus Christ, a real man, who even atheist historians believe was real, and most of them believe that he really died on a cross, We only know the reason for that. But they would believe that, that, that he really did die on a cross. But this man, Jesus Christ, a real man, really suffered for these real historical sins that necessitated the just punishment of our holy God on the cross. His suffering was because of the lying you have personally done. That's why he was there, because you lied. The stealing you've done, taking things that don't belong to you, the lusting you've done, the adultery you've done, the pride you have, the anger, the bitterness, the love of other things more than God, the idolatry, the bestiality, the homosexuality, the deceptions, the murder, the covetousness, the greed, the jealousy, the envy, the gossip, the utter self-absorption, the hate. It's these things that Jesus bore in his body. It's the just punishment for these things. I want to be specific about them. You know, part of the reason I want to be specific about them is you may have some of these things crop up in you in the future. And I want you to understand where the punishment for these things were actually taken. But I also want you to know, if you haven't ever considered it, why Jesus is there. He's there because of sin, real sin. Every sin accounted for, for all his people. And how many are we talking about here? Right? Well, Jesus gives a parable, doesn't he? He gives a parable to tell us a little bit about how many sins we're talking about, what kind of debt we've got. Right? One man owed 10,000 talents. It's really an absurd number. In other words, no one man could ever be in debt that much. Talking a a few hundred years of, of wages paid. In one sense, it's an exaggeration at a human level, but on another sense, in a spiritual level, it is not an exaggeration at all. And he does this to reveal the enormity of our sin debt to God. We owed God perfect love and obedience, and we come forth from the womb speaking lies, accruing a mountain of debt. And these very sins are the sins Jesus bore. He humbled We should be humbled. We should be utterly appalled at our own sin that fell on the Savior and yet, and yet, at the same time, be absolutely overjoyed 
that all that lying, all that stealing, all that coveting, all that adultery, all that bitterness, hatred, gossip was paid for once for all 2,000 years ago. Once for all in the person of Jesus Christ. 10,000 talents worth of debt for one man. Multiply that times who knows how many, right? We don't know. We can't even count them, John says. However big that is, whatever number that is, that's the debt that was taken that day 2,000 years ago, paid for in full. It is finished. And this debt release has a purpose. And that purpose we'll look at next week. Because I'm not going to be able to finish it. But just suffice it to say, brethren, today that he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross is, is a truth. And the more you emerge, if you're someone who struggles with assurance in here, you, you need to just meditate, just memorize, it's a small verse. Memorize it, think about it, take it to heart. Hopefully you're not someone who just assumes that's true, of course, um, in the sense of it's some flippant thing to you. I know for me, the first couple years of being a Christian, I really struggled with assurance, and it wasn't until I really immersed myself deeply in the atonement and, and realizing what happened there that, that I was able to have my assurance restored, to realize that, that every day I wake up as a son of God. Every day I wake up forgiven. Because honestly, if you're like me, and I probably are, most days I feel like I fail. Every day, all day. Even this morning, I'm sitting back there thinking of all these things that I'm not doing well at, right? You know, and, and some of those things I may not be doing well at. But the reality is, the greatest of my problems has been absorbed in his body on the tree. That's just the truth. And we can rejoice in that. And if you ever doubt the goodness of God, just make sure you always measure it by that reality not by your circumstances but by that glorious truth and reality and what a loving savior we have brethren paul calls us to or yeah i think yeah paul calls us to pray to to ask the lord to help us to grasp the love of christ that surpasses knowledge one of the ways you grasp that is by grasping your own sin right i think i've said it before i heard one pastor say one time i came and i preached hard on sin and somebody came up to him afterward and says why do you preach so hard on sin he says because I want you to love God more and that's just the truth isn't it the more you know about who you were and what Christ took the more immense you see his love and that's just the truth so why don't I just stop and let's just pray that we will more and more comprehend with all the saints the height and breadth and love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do this for us. And, and also, just before I pray, just, yeah, just to appeal to any of you who maybe have never even grasped the sense that your sins are against a holy God and that they're real and that they, will, they, will, they genuinely will be dealt with in this life or in the next. And so I just want to appeal to you to come to Christ now don't face him on that day there's no escape but you can take refuge in him here
Let's pray. Father, thank you for just these sobering words, this just amazing reality that, that the Lord Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, um, and we just all admit here, I, I know I do, that I don't fully grasp the enormity of that good news. And we just pray that you would help us all in this room comprehend more and more the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Please help us, Lord. We know that as we have a sense of that day by day, an ever-increasing sense of that day by day, we will be more useful to you. We'll be more loving to one another. We'll be better brothers and sisters. We'll be better parents. We'll be, we'll be um, better friends, better, co- better employees. <laughs> knowing the love of Jesus, knowing what, what he has taken, knowing what we deserve, Lord, this will set us free more and more. And we pray that you would do that for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.